Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Diane Valer to the podcast this week. National best-selling author Diane Valer writes smart, funny, and fashionable character-based mysteries. After two decades working for a top luxury retailer, she traded fashion accessories for accessories to murder. A past president of Sisters in Crime, Diane started her own detective agency at age 10 and has maintained a passion for shoes, clues, and clothes ever since. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long, and I, I'm, I'm delighted that we're going to start it. Um, but let's start where I always start these conversations. Um, when did you first tell yourself or say aloud, I want to write a book? I started, I think I got the idea to write a book back in 1993, which I did start writing. I wrote longhand. I never finished it, but it's, I did transcribe it, and it's in a notebook somewhere. Um, it wasn't until the early 2000s that I had a solid idea that I actually sat down and wrote and ended up with a complete book, a complete manuscript at that point. And it took a while from that point till I was published. But that was when I really said, I want to do this. I, I have an idea and I want to write. And did you take classes or, uh, you know, how did you sort of learn the craft of writing a novel at that point in the early 2000s when you thought, mm, let's try this? I think a lot of my craft really came from reading, from reading a lot of books and really immersing myself in fiction and reading what I wanted to write and just getting an idea of what was out there in the market and I didn't really even do it for that reason. I did it because it was so enjoyable, and but that helped me get a, pay, a feeling for the pacing. And I checked some books out of the library on how to write a novel and on how to get published and, and took tips like that and found Sisters in Crime in, um, I think it was toward maybe 2006, 2005, 2006 mm -hmm. was when I joined up. And that became a forum where I found out I can talk to people. I can ask questions. I can... Like there's other people like me out there. And that was a really big deal. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, was it always crime novels for you or, or have you thought about other genres or, or, you know, did you drop a body in 1993? <laughs> <laughs> well, my 1993 book was um, a Batman Catwoman fan fiction <laughs> yeah. with a fashionable awesome. villain. So even back then it was like all the same things that I like to write about. I pretty quickly realized that I didn't own the Batman franchise, so I was never going to be able to publish that story. So that that moved, I moved away from that. Um, I grew up reading Trixie Belden mysteries, and any Trixie Belden fans out there will probably, they'll just swell with happiness at finding another Trixie fan. But I read them, and I, so I always did have an idea that I thought the greatest thing in the world would be to write children's mystery series. I also read Connie Blair, and I also read The Three Investigators. Those were my three big series. I just never had any, any ideas of a 
teen or a middle grade sleuth. I, mm-hmm. So it was more of a concept. I want to write this, but I don't know what it is. It was after I moved, um, I moved from Pennsylvania to Texas. I was working there and I really didn't fit in in Texas. And I went to the library one day on my lunch break and I discovered humorous mysteries, cozy mysteries. And that was such a big thing for me. That was like 1998. And I think just finding those books and reading them and finding, you know, uh, Lawrence Block's um, Bernie Rodenbar series and Jenna Devonovich was like, I think the first book I read was book three in the Stephanie Plum series. And just finding those books, I thought this is like in a, a grown up version of what I do. Mm-hmm. This is what I, I could do this. I could, you know, this is what I want to try to do. So that's kind of where the mystery part came from. Once I started allowing myself to write, uh, I, I did get ideas for a middle grade. I wrote a standalone romantic suspense. I wrote a uh, rom-com, but I always returned to mysteries. I love the uh, romantic suspense, rom-com, mysteries, you know, all the, all the, um, all the different tropes that can get mangled and pulled together in a different kind of mystery as well, especially if you like funny or, or light, more mysteries, more on the lighthearted yes. Um, yes. side. Um, so what's your process like when you write? Uh, these days when I write, I write three books a year. So I kind of know which months I'm going to be sitting down writing and I know a general concept for what my book is going to be about and uh, when it's time to sit down and write I usually immerse myself in something from that world if it's the series that has to do with Doris Day then I watch the related Doris Day movie if it's a series that has to do with my fashionable sleuth I kind of figure out what the style of that book is going to be and I immerse myself in that and then I just sit down and I just start writing I, I really am a pantser I like to write in the mornings and I kind of use a version of the Pomodoro method where I set the timer for 45 minutes and write, then I take a 15 minute break. Then I write for 45 and break. And that helps me hit, you know, 25 to 3,500 words a day, which gets okay. me, you know, gets me a draft in, in a month, a month and a half around there. So three books a year, let's talk about those series, but also let's just talk about sort of the beginning and, and, you know, how you found your characters and how you did that. And then I'm going to come back to process because I find it fascinating. Three books a year is a lot. (laughs) For for those of you at home who are keeping track, that's a lot. So I I look forward to hearing more about that. But tell me about, you know, how you, were you always drawn to writing series? You know, you've mentioned a couple of standalones, but, but tell me about your, you know, sort of how the characters and how your ideas for series came together. My first character that I came up with, um, was very much based on my personal experience, life experience at the time. She was kind of like a splinter off of like a different version of me, a different universe version of me. And it was just somebody who was fed up with her job, who gave up her career path, moved back home to the house where she grew up, took a job at a small town retailer, and on her first day on the job, found a body. And (laughs) I... There, I must have been having a really bad day at work when I got the idea because the idea of giving everything up and starting over was so attractive to me. But I kind of gave that to her and I thought, like, what would be the worst thing to happen? You just decide you're going to have a whole new life. You decide you're going to just fresh start, different path, give it all up, and then the you find a body. And then 
nobody knows why you're where you're supposed to be. So then you become the suspect. And, you know, so then you're now you're in a new town, your new job, you don't know anybody, you're trying to figure this out. And so that became that first character. And I, I knew from the get go that I wanted her to be a series character. So when I wrote her, I didn't know what her next adventure was going to be until that one ended. And that one took me about a year to write mm-hmm. on weekends on like Saturday and Sunday mornings. The second one took me nine months to write. And the third one took me three months to write. So I wow. felt that just the, the, just the act of writing, writing is great training for writing and mm-hmm. just writing and then polishing and writing and polishing really did improve my skills a lot. I think I was finding local writing groups at the time too. And so talking to other writers about things and getting some background information or some, or some research was helping. What happened was I started, at that point, I started trying to do something with the manuscripts. I thought I've written them, but let's try to get a publisher. So I checked a book out of the library on how to get published and it told you who to find and get this directory. So I checked out the directory and I went through and I highlighted the, I, I didn't highlight the book, but I marked which people I wanted to send it to. I went to small presses first and I started sending out the query letters and, and kind of went that path. And that was really the beginning of the journey that, you know, it's still the same journey that people go through today, but that was really how I got started trying to do something other than just writing for my own entertainment. So when you talk about checking out the books and, and marking and, and sending out query letters, I mean, these days that's such a different idea, but back then it was, you know, sending out a self-addressed stamped envelope and getting the most current literary, um, what is it, letter, literary agents and editors or whatever <laughs> that was and, and you know, sharing it with other people. And I mean, it was, it was a thing. I mean, it was a real process to try oh, and figure this out. You know, I remember wh- how excited I would get when I had a request for the full manuscript and then I would have to send the manuscript, the file to Kinko's for them to print it out. So I got a box right. and I could send it off and the, and I working out the math that it was actually more cost effective to just buy printer ink and just print them out myself but you're right it was a big process and it was a it was a big deal because you actually doing it felt like you were making progress but mm-hmm. I think now that everything is just click attach send it almost lacks a little of the pageantry of the process but it's a lot faster so I think we prefer speed over, over all that cumbersome process. Yeah. I, I still think that having some sort of process, even with that quick is important because you just need to slow down and make sure you're strategically, you know, and read your feedback or, uh, you know, so that you can yeah. make adjustments. I mean, querying is not for the faint of heart, no. um, and, uh, is a process unto itself. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so how long, was it that first series, your first published series, or or where are you in this? Because you've had a fascinating uh, writing journey that I'm, I'm loving talking about. Well, that was my first published series, but it took a while because I wrote those first three books. The third one was really kind of rough. <laughs> and, and then my personal life sort of fell apart. And I just lost interest in, in pursuing anything. I really didn't, I couldn't get my head together to write anything. So a year or two went by when I just didn't move forward. That's when I moved from Texas to California. 
And I knew that move, part of it was I wanted to be in a different location because I knew that was Mm -hmm. going to provide some freshness and it was going to allow me to approach this completely differently and not have other negatives hanging around me. And once I moved, then I started, I, I started looking at those books again. And I thought, instead of going back over the same three books, I continued to go back over. I want to write something completely new. I'm just going to, you know, what I did, when my, what my new thing was, was I wrote book four, <laughs> which wasn't completely new. But once I wrote that, that's when that same year I wrote the middle grade book. And then I wrote the standalone um, romantic suspense. And then I wrote the chiclet, the like rom-com book all in the mm-hmm. same year. And it was almost like this opening up a door and just saying, stop beating your head against the wall with this thing that isn't moving, just write something else. And after doing all that, I, then I had an opportunity to submit to an anthology, which was a sisters in crime guppy anthology. And I, my short story was accepted and that became my first publication credit. And that Mm -hmm. was also not any series character. That was a completely new idea. And that kind of really let me see there's other things. You're not just going to write one thing. You can write multiple. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, I also had an idea for a different series that I wrote. And I started actively querying the first series and the second series and the rom-com. And, you know, so I started having multiple projects that I could query, which really made me feel more like I was taking it seriously. I was Mm -hmm. working full time, but I remember thinking, if this is important to me, I have to make time to to do this. So I got up an hour earlier every day and I'm not a morning person. So that was like a really big deal, but I got up early just so I could sit down and say, but I send one query letter out a day. That's it. Mm -hmm. That just shows that I am still invested in this process. And that's what I did. And I just kind of kept working along that, those lines. So what I hear you saying, and I think this is such a great thing for people to hear is that writers write So rewriting the same thing wasn't getting you any further, but writing different things, they may not have worked, but it it sort of sharpened your skills and made you look at the world a little bit differently and maybe inspired you in different ways. And so it's never wasted energy to work on a new project, even if ultimately that project is in a, you know, hidden drive on the computer. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think, it, that the main thing you just remind yourself of all the time is writers write and there's so there are so many other things we can get bogged down in especially once you start having published works you start realizing there is always something else you could be doing but ultimately if you don't write something else you you're not moving yourself forward the writing is the most important thing and the next book sells the last book and the you're you're always you you always have that opportunity and sometimes I, when I find, when I used to find myself sitting around playing internet solitaire for (laughs) an hour, I would just say, why are you not doing the thing that you said you wanted to do? And that would kind of shake me into like a reset. And then I'd open up my word document and I'd start working again. Yeah. And I love the earlier you talked about the Pomodoro method. And I think that that's a good thing for folks to remember too. You can 25 minutes of writing, if that's all you can do or thinking about it or noodling is 25 more minutes than you spent, you would have spent. And it moves you forward. Little increments of, of writing move you forward in a, when, especially when you have a lot of other things on right. your plate. I, some of the best training I had writing wise was writing on my lunch break when I had a full-time job, because I had 
an hour. And that included the time that I ate. So really I had about 50 minutes to write and I would keep a laptop in the stock room of a department store. And there was an old table and I was in between rows of clothing was hanging all around me and my coworkers would come back to get sizes for their customers. But I would pack my lunch to save time and I would go back there, sit down. And I knew I have a timer on and I have a certain amount of time to write and I would just go. And uh, it would, I would get, you know, 1100 to 1400 words in, in that hour, Mm -hmm. but I learned to turn it on. So I learned whenever I had a pocket of time, use it. And when I was a buyer and I traveled, I used to write on the airplane. So if I was flying from Texas to New York or flying from Texas to Europe, I would get a cup of coffee. My coworkers would sleep and I would open up my laptop and I would think I have six hours to write. What, where's the story going to go? So I really train myself. It was like a scarcity almost. I didn't have a lot of time, mm-hmm. so I had to use that time. So I can still write very well if I go to an airport and I'm waiting for a flight. I can really tune everybody out and get a lot of words down. So that really served me well. And you keep exercising that writing muscle, and we'll talk about that as well. But talk about, you've got two fairly long-running series. So talk about those characters and, and how how do they show up for you? I mean, because yeah, um, they're both wonderful and unique and uh, and and interesting and and very Diane. So how did how did they show up for you? Well, Samantha Kidd was the first one, and she was the former fashion buyer who found the dead boss on her first day at the new job, and she really did walk out of the my own experience. It I, I look at the the common advice at the time was write what you know. And I really took that to heart because I put her in a, a, she had the same similar background to me. Not, nothing was exactly the same, but it was very similar. I like to think she was like a splinter version of me from where college ended up. She had a different career path at that point, but it was very easy to write her world because I had lived it. When I was querying her and getting lukewarm responses, I was getting a lot of we like it, we don't love it, responses. Mm-hmm. And I was getting frustrated. I thought I want to write something else. And I remember very clearly one day I had the idea for Madison Knight and it came out of loving Doris Day movies. And I just thought I want to make a character who loves Doris Day movies and who dresses, she's going to be the opposite of Samantha. She's going to wear vintage instead of new clothes. She's going to be a decorator, not in fashion. She's going to be 47 years old. She's not going to be, you know, she's not, she's going to be a little older. And so many things were born out of like, she has to be different from Samantha. But I thought Mm -hmm. I was being really wise because I thought I'm going to write her exactly like I write Samantha, but she has all these different characteristics. So it's going to be really easy to write. And I'm going to have this other book. And I started writing it and very quickly realized this 47-year-old with a bad knee, with who was a decorator, and she had a whole different set of experiences. So she was never going to sound just like Samantha Kidd. And on the page, as I was writing her, is where I found her voice. And I discovered how she, what her situation was and what her qualities were, what allowed her to be a good sleuth. And, and I, I remember when I had the idea, emailing some writer friends that night and saying, I got this idea and the first book's going to be Pillow Stock and the second book's, and I gave three titles <laughs> and they weren't the first three titles that I used, but it was still that idea of these, I, these books that riffed on Doris Day movies. And so now that has, 
that has surprised me with the longevity. I really thought that was going to be a three book series and, and uh, book 10 is coming out in October. So. Um, and do you, um, so you write a book in each of those series or, or two of the three books you write a year. And tell me about the third book you write every year. I actually am just bouncing back and forth between those two series right now. Okay. Each year, one of those series gets two books. This year, it this is the 10-year anniversary of my publishing journey. And it worked out that my June book is on the anniversary of the book that came out in June 10 years ago. And my October book is in the series of the book that came out for the first time October 10 years ago. So they really lined up perfectly. Wow. I am with an agent right now who is shopping a couple of concepts for me. So I keep myself limited to these two series right now because I want to be able to have a slot should something sell that I could easily drop these two to each one book a year and have a space to go ahead and write a third book for one of those series. Yes. So that's why right now I'm kind of keeping it controlled with the series that I have and not starting something new on my own. And are Samantha and Madison still giving you fresh ideas or, or, um, you know, are you still having fun with those series? I am. I'm, I'm, I've had some books that I've struggled with, but ultimately I've been happy with how the books ended up. So sometimes they come really easily. Sometimes they don't. And that's what happens when you're writing, trying to write a get a draft in about a month. Sometimes it just pours out of you and sometimes you get a little stuck in there. But they are still giving me ideas. I'm really excited about the Madison book that comes out in October. I haven't written that one yet, but I know what it's going to be. And I'm really excited about that concept. It actually isn't what I thought it was going to be for book 10. And when book nine was done, I was so strongly drawn to this idea that was not what I thought I was going to do. And I thought, well, I can make, it can be whatever I want it to be. So I'm going to switch. And so I just hadn't told anyone the original idea. I just decided to do a different book for book 10. So I'm, I'm really excited about that one. And do you, um, you with your, do you have an editor who looks at things or, or tell me, you know, do you let a draft sit and then work on another project? Could you, can you only focus on one project at a time? How do you keep up that schedule? I write the first draft and often I'm usually working on a rolling draft. So each day I review the previous day's writing and polish that till before I go into the new writing. So it's I'm constantly kind of cleaning it up. When I finish, I do have a beta reader who I send the manuscript off to and she tells me what she, if there's any holes, if things aren't clear, if there's anything that she felt didn't work, really gives me that level of feedback so I can go back in, tweak those things, do another read through of my own, and then I send it off to a proofreader. And once it comes back from the proofreader is when I send it out to my review crew and load it to um, the different pre-order channels. But I pre-order, the book is up for pre-order far before that. Yeah, so because right now these two, two series are uh, you're indie publishing them, and so that's you know you that whole business side and how you do that is uh, skill, and you are so good at that. Um, but let's as we're celebrating ten years, how many books have you written in these ten years and published? Thirty six. Wow! Wow! Are you going to take a minute in you know December twenty twenty two and say? Look at that. I mean, that's quite the accomplishment. I I don't know if I am. I'm I'm 
happy when I think about it. People constantly ask, and I often don't remember the number, so I started keeping track on my phone. <laughs> it, it's a lot, but the thing is, in this climate, there are a lot of authors who have written far more, and that's the good and the bad of our community, is that there's always someone who has done more than you've done. So right. when we compare ourselves to other people, you start to think, well, that's not very much. Or three books a year, that's nothing. I know somebody who writes 10 books a year. So it's very difficult, I think, when you when your benchmarks are comparison. That was actually a problem for me. I had to actively withdraw from different writer groups because comparisonitis started to actually lead me to burnout. Yeah. And, and so I had to I had to back away and reassess what I wanted and where, how I wanted to do it. And that's when I put myself on the three book a year plan, because I thought that's doable and comfortable for me. I'm not going to try to do more than that. I think that's, that's, that'll work. You know, Diane, that's such valuable uh, advice for anyone and not everyone could do three books a year. Some people, you know, do one book in two years and it, you need to find what works for you Absolutely. Um, and make it work. And when you're indie published, you're also your own publisher. So you're going to set your own guidelines there. And, you know, when you're traditionally published, you may have a contract, but you also need to negotiate a contract that you feel like you can do as well. I mean, I, I know people have gotten two books year contracts and and it's it's been terrible they haven't enjoyed right the process at all and and it's too hard a process not to enjoy at some point right it can very easily become a pressure-filled situation it can become something mm -hmm. where the the joyful part of the process becomes the difficult part of the process and when that happens really there's no joy to be found from the other parts the, the writing almost needs to be protected and and nurtured and kept the the fun part because it's hard if the writing is difficult it's hard to say yes but I recapped my numbers today and that was really fun because recaps generally aren't the source of a lot of joy for people so I think that's that's ultimately we're all creative I know I have a strong analytical side and that served me well when I worked in a corporate job and it serves me well being um, running my business now. And I know that, but I still know that that part of my brain that tells the stories is something that I have to figure out how to protect it. Because if that stops, then, then it, everything's capped. Right. And that's a fragile thing I, for everybody, but yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's fragile. So and uh, I do think um, the past two years have been difficult for it. It's really taken its toll on creatives. We were, Almost, we were almost told, you have all the time in the world, do whatever you've wanted to do. And a lot of us were already trying to do that thing. So it became that that messaging was difficult because we were already doing it. And so we were almost, an extra pressure was put on us. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people I've talked to have had trouble paying yeah. the course and having, mining that creativity. Yes, absolutely. And even though writing is a solo activity, um, writers need community. Um, and, and we haven't been able to see each other, which has been difficult as well. Um, what's the best piece and the worst piece of writing advice you've gotten? I think the worst was definitely to 
and this is personal, so I'm not going to say that this would be the same answer for anyone else out there. But to me, mm-hmm. the worst piece of advice I got was to write to market because again, it goes back to that joy of writing. If you can't find the love of the project that makes you want to sit down and come up with these words and tell these storylines and spend all of this time reading and rereading what you wrote, because we all reread our books probably, you know, 10, 12 times before they come out. If you don't have the joy for that, it doesn't matter if you hit a trope that's out there because you just, you're not satisfied. And that was, that was advice. When I heard it, I thought I'm leaving huge success out there because I'm going, doing these other ideas, but the other ideas were the things I wanted to write at that time. Mm -hmm. The best advice I ever got was sort of, in a way, it was the opposite of that, which was to let go, that write bigger, that, um, you know, don't, don't keep yourself small, just let, let yourself go, write things that you think you shouldn't write, you can always edit the page later, but just, let it be big, let it be crazy, let it, let it be whatever it wants to be. And then assess it later after the fact and see if it works or not, because that sometimes has brought out an idea that's far bigger than I think I would have ever come up with if I were self-editing during the process. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I love that. Write bigger, you know, trust yourself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you uh, are, you know, what we're calling at Sisters in Crime now, a hybrid author, folks who have been both traditionally and uh, indie published. Uh, but you have really um, embraced indie publishing and made it your own and, and have given so many people such great advice and, and such conversations. Um, and p- if people look at your social media, it's well curated. You're, you know, each series is, is beautifully done. The covers all, all work together. You know, um, next time you go to a conference, people should pay attention because see, watching you pack is, is one of the great joys. Um, but, um, <clears throat> how did you learn so much about the publishing part of of writing? Being a member of Sisters in Crime definitely helped because I talked to people who shared their story. So I understood what happened in the process. Early on, I started the Press Quest subgroup, which was focused on the small press journey. So that was conversation about finding a smaller publisher. And that helped too. But I think the main thing, once you get published, it's almost like you get this backward view of the world and you get to see everything so much more clearly. You understand all the roadblocks that you hit along the way. You understand why they were there. So every Mm -hmm. step I took, I was able to understand what was behind me a little bit more. I did join IBPA, which was is the Independent Book Publishers Association. I find them to be a very professional group. Um, they send out a quarterly magazine, and I get a lot of information from them. Going to writers' conferences has been another great place because you constantly are hearing from someone who's telling you how things were done. And this, this applies to indie or traditional. I think... Mm-hmm. My goal when I first, my first book was self-published and my goal when I did it was that I didn't want to feel like I sacrificed anything I would have gotten if I had gotten a traditionally published contract. 
So I set everything up with those same things in mind that I knew I would have gotten. So I printed up our copies to send out to the media. I sent them out four months ahead of time so I could get advanced press. I approached authors to get quotes for the back of the book. I did everything that I knew was part of the journey. And some of that worked out really well for me because some of that was how my first book got in front of a traditional publisher, which opened a door for me to present them with a different idea that ended up being a series that they purchased. So that helped. Um, Treating everything very professionally like that helped when I sent out review copies of my second book and I got picked up. I I got a quote from Library Journal who didn't traditionally review indie published books. So it really did help me to understand traditional publishing and apply that to my journey. That was important to me at the time. It may not be important to everybody, but this is again, one of the most important things I've learned through my journey is that your path can be whatever you want it to be. So you know what you want it to be. And that's so important to know for yourself, because if you just model your path on the person next to you, you might not be happy with those things. So you might get everything they have and be completely dissatisfied because it never was important to you to begin with. So that was, but that was really how I learned things. And I made mistakes and I read books and I kept trying to do implement what I had heard and kept trying new things. And I've always figured, try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love, um, I love that advice of you've got got to be mindful and you've got to go for your own journey. You can't let this happen to you. You need to be a participant in this journey because it's a, it's a roller coaster and you got to buckle up. So, um, so know which ride you're going on. Yes. I actually made that mistake in my career when I was early on, not at the very beginning, but when I was starting to get a little bit of momentum in my career, I was thinking, what do I want? What do I want? What are my goals? And I kind of looked at what other authors had or what I knew other authors had achieved. And I thought, oh, that would be really great to have this. It would really be great to win this. It would really be great to have this review, different things like that. And what, what happened was as I inched toward those things or even achieved some of those things, I didn't feel any different. I didn't have this sense of satisfaction. So I really did learn that firsthand. I didn't, I didn't just know that initially. I went through that whole cycle of why am I not happy yet? Why am I not happy yet? What do I need to get to be happy? And I was forward thinking, but I was never stopping to kind of smell the roses or appreciate anything. I was never just happy with my success because I've kept thinking, yes, but that person has more, that person... Again, that's why I talk about comparisonitis and how it's not good. So I really did learn that lesson of how important it is to know what you want. Because once you know what you want, your path is so clear, but you can also support other people's paths because there's no jealousy involved. There's no envy. There's no, I want what you have, so I'm not going to tell you because we're ultimately competing. You just get this clarity and you understand we're all do- what we're all doing, any one of us succeeds, we all succeed. And that's a really good yeah. place to see. Yeah. Boy, is that a gift to um, tell people and to believe. And because I believe it too. I, I think we celebrate, celebrating other people's success is only good for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, you are a past president of Sisters in Crime National. Um, and uh, tell me about that and what Sisters in Crime and community has meant to your writing and publishing journey. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but let's talk about Sisters in Crime and your year as president. Sure. I think Sisters in Crime was really the first professional organization that I joined, and it made a difference first off because it was sending a sign back to myself that I took this seriously enough to talk to other people. I wasn't just going alone. I was... As most people were at the time, we were in the dark. We were, we had an idea. We wanted to write a book. We started to write a book, and then we didn't know what to do. So joining Sisters in Crime gave us other people to talk to. And from there, there were so many opportunities within the organization for manuscript swaps, for blurb workshops. I told you my first publication credit was in a Sisters in Crime anthology. But there were just opportunities. And even going back to the beginning of our talk today, talking about how writing helped me become, just the act of writing helped me become a stronger writer. The same thing, having an opportunity to write an article for the Guppy newsletter was writing and taking that seriously and building up a credit that I could then say in a query letter, I'm a member of Sisters in Crime, which tells agents and publishers that you take yourself seriously, but also being able to say, my first writing publication credit is in this anthology. I've written for this newsletter. So you Mm -hmm. have to build up credits before you're even published. And you talk to people. You talk to people who then when it's time, when you realize you need a quote for your book, you you know somebody you can ask because you've been interacting with people online. So from that first time from the first joining and talking to other people and getting to know people I still have very close friends who are some are still writers some are not writers but we are still very close friends because we met in that kind of pressure cooker environment and we remember what that was like when we were all starting out and trying to figure this out so I think that sense of community is massive I can't overstate how important it is to have some people who understand what you're doing because your home life might not And my year as president, well, I was president of the Los Angeles chapter before I was national president. So I actually kind of came up, I was merchandise president or merchandise director in Los Angeles and then president in Los Angeles. And then I went to national and it felt like a big thing, which it is. It's a very big thing. And it felt big. And I thought, there's a lot of authors out there who are figuring this out just like I was at some point. And I want to kind of help them know that there's a place that they can ask questions. But I also knew, I think I was the first president who was self-published in addition to being traditionally published. So I wanted all of our members to recognize that we didn't think one was better than the other. I wanted to represent that and basically just show it doesn't matter what way you're published you're published. And this is whatever your goal is, you're an author and we appreciate you and you can be as professional as you want to be and you can be as successful as you want to be. So that was really, I think, an important thing for me, just knowing that. And I think I probably entered the presidency feeling a little self-conscious about that, thinking that 
it, my journey had been different from the, my predecessors and would I be, how would I be viewed because of that? But I did find a lot of people who came up to me and constantly said, we really appreciate the fact that you did this. And we know that you're doing what we're doing and we want to ask you questions. And that opened up a whole other door to see that there were a lot of people who maybe felt like they were left behind and realized they weren't. Mm -hmm. That just became an important thing to me. So this is one of your great legacies is that you, you had this conversation, you were uh, your hybrid author and you were able to say, and to think about sisters in crime, how we're serving traditionally published and self-published folks and, and the different needs. Some of them are the same. Some of them are different and, and the inclusive conversation around those two different viable paths for people. And that they are, as you said, so eloquently a little while ago, you, you need to make a choice and your, your choice of how you do this may be that you're going to self-publish. So make that a good choice and, and go for it, but, but make it an active choice. Yes. I think when early on in self-publishing, there was a belief that self-publishing was for people who couldn't make it traditionally. And I think that's a, that's definitely the wrong way to view it. I think most people are past that and see that it is a choice. But I think there was a little bit to overcome. I'll be honest. I think there were we there were there was judgment. And I remember some conversations online of people choosing to be self-published and then people were trying to come up with the criteria that basically said, well, this person's fine to do it, but this person isn't. It, it wasn't neat and clean at the beginning. But I think as people have people to look at who have done it, who have succeeded in whatever way they've wanted to succeed, it's helped people see that there are options. And like you said, there are people who had traditional contracts where they were two books in a year, and that was really difficult for them. And the beauty of self-publishing is you can set your own schedule. You can have it be what you want it to be. So if you want to write one book a year, that's fine. If you want to write five books a year, that's fine. If you decide you just want to write 30,000 word novellas, that's fine. And there are, yes. there are people doing this at, at every different option and they're succeeding at it. So there really is something out there for whatever you want your journey to be. Yeah. And understanding the market uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're trying to sell a book, it may be a wonderful book, but but an editor at a house may not want it. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't see the light of day. Um, it means, you know, that's when you sort of say, okay, they're, they're telling me it doesn't fit into a category. They can't sell it. I think I can. So that's, that's another reason to choose this, especially as people are sort of taking a bunch of different types of books and putting them together and making them their own. Yes. I, we said a little bit back about what do you understand about publishing? And I talked about how every step I went, I understood what was behind me a little bit more. And this was something that really made a lot more sense that I realized when a publisher says that the idea, they just might not, it's, 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 we like the writing, but we just didn't embrace the hook or something like that. You realize publishers is, is a business. They know how many copies they need to sell in order to earn Mm -hmm. out to make money. They know because they have tons of recaps, what generally will, what is trending and what they should chase. 
And they might think an idea sounds wonderful, but if they can't figure out how to sell it, that's going to be a problem. One of my series, I love the concept of it, but it's been a big challenge trying to sell it because it is one of those mashups. And it's been hard trying to figure out, well, if I try to push it to the cozy world, they're not embracing it because it has a science fiction element. And if I try to push it to the science fiction world, they're not embracing it because it has a cozy cover. So I understand completely why a publisher might not take something that is fresh and unique because they they don't know how to put it in a bookstore. And I know that there's sales all over the place online, but still there has to be some sort of idea of what keywords to use and what are going to be the search terms and what's the SEO and all those business things that help drive a book. They have to be clean enough for a publisher to say, yes, we know we can sell X amount of copies of this. And that Mm -hmm. might be the only reason. And that doesn't mean a book isn't viable. And it doesn't mean the author can't do extremely well with that if they do it on their own. In fact, they may do better because they're self-publishing. You're so much more able to pivot, try things, take risks, do different things. There are so many opportunities that we can do in an indie world that we can't do in a trad world. Right, right. And something that is the mashup of cozy and sci-fi you can find that niche audience on your own who's going to be so excited about this opportunity to read these books and you don't have to sell the thousands of books that a traditional publisher might need to do. Um, You'd like to, and you may, but, but, you know, a few hundred are, you know, of faithful readers is, is great. And that that's going to get you where you want to go. And you have a very, um, a robust, you know, list and you, you have readers who are following your journey and everything else that would, are some of the things that you do with your marketing, um, part of your retail background, just understanding about building consumer confidence and getting people all, you know, really excited about things in advance. Cause you're very good at that. Well, thank you. I think some of it is the retail background, um, knowing, thinking in terms of, launching a product or doing recaps and identifying trends, seeing if something's working or something isn't working, just looking at the business that way. I think that does come from my retail background and, and doing those kinds of recaps. I think being subscribed to lists that readers would be subscribed to, to see what books are coming out, like the like bookshop.org or Barnes and Noble or things like that, just seeing the new releases or seeing the language they're using to talk about books. You also start to see what's working. And I generally, most Sunday mornings, I go to Barnes and Noble and I just walk the store for like two hours and I just look at books. And, you know, I never get out of there without buying a couple, but it's market research. It's seeing what's new on the shelves. It's seeing what colors mm-hmm. are starting to turn up on the covers. It's seeing what techniques they're using. So all of that, I think, helps go into that marketing plan. And then I think the main thing is what do what you want to do and be consistent at it. So I used to be much more active on social media, but I found that trying to keep up with social media and write and do all the things was really exhausting me. And I just really let social media go because I thought I'm not doing it as consistently as other people. I can do a newsletter weekly. So I'm going to put all my energy into my newsletter and I'm going to make sure I send it every week. And I'm going to try to give value in that newsletter. 
And if I post on social media, it may be infrequent. It may be surrounding a book release, but I'm not going to put that pressure on myself to do it all the time. And that was a big thing. And it really made me feel like I had my life back. Everywhere I went, didn't feel like, oh, I have to get a selfie. <laughs> well, I also, you know, was putting my marketing hat on. The That's a much better attempt place to put your attention is developing your email list and sending out a newsletter because you own that. We rent social media. So folks who build their entire platform on a rented, <laughs> on rented land may have it pulled out from under you, which, you know, as Facebook or Instagram or Twitter change algorithms, we all see what happens. Right. But if you're sending out a weekly newsletter, I mean, that's a lot of work. Um, that, that, that's building up, you know, reader expectations and conversations and everything else. And, and you own it. I, I agree. It's, it's the advice has always been to work on that newsletter list. And that was something that I decided to do a couple of years back. And I just decided to go, like I said, to go all in on it. And just when I started, I thought, can I do this every week? Am I, are people going to get tired of me? And I really, I realized, and this is another one of those mental switches that happens is if you think the people you're emailing are going to be annoyed that you're emailing them, then you're not including the right content. And that's when you realize, oh, okay, I want to write something that I want people to open. So what is that going to be? And that changed the way I approached my newsletter. It changed the way I talked to the people who are signed up for my newsletter. It changed how I talked about my books and what I offered to them and everything. And that made it feel like I was emailing a friend instead of feeling like I'm trying to sell a book and people sign up. They know that I'm an author. So that's, there's no great mystery there of why this newsletter list exists, but I want it to feel like every week when they open it, they're getting something out of it that is going to make their day a little bit more enriched. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You're building a relationship and that's, you know, with your readers, (laughs) that's tremendous. So you've got two books coming out this year. Yes. I have a June book and an October book. And uh, what are the titles? And they were, we're taping this in 2020, taping it. I just aged myself, recording this in 2020, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> um, wow. Um, uh, so what are the titles? So in June, Stark Raving Mod comes out, and that is number 13 in Samantha Kid. And in October, Love Me or Grieve Me comes out, which is number 10 of Madison Knight. <laughs> And how many Doris Day movies did she, how many movies did Doris Day make? I mean, how, how long could this series go? I honestly don't know how many she's made, but I know I have titles for, I think at least four more and that's without any effort. Now, Love Me or Grieve Me just popped into my head recently. And when I, as soon as I had the idea, I knew exactly what that, which concept that was going to fit. So I do know that I have other titles in reserve for the future. So yeah. I, that, that has not ended up being a problem. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Diane, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you again for inviting me to be on the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. 
We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.